Good to see you all. I'm Gary Brooks, the teaching pastor, senior pastor here at West Hills. If you're a guest with us this morning, welcome. We're glad you're here. And uh, it looks like we're going to get home okay without any major weather catastrophes. So, This morning and next week, I'm, I'm bringing two topical messages. If you're not familiar with West Hills, generally speaking, we preach through books of the Bible. And uh, we're in First Peter right now. We'll, be, we'll come back to First Peter in about three weeks. But uh, I just felt the need to bring a couple of messages here at the beginning of the year that I think potentially could have a significant impact on each of our lives for the remainder of the year. And I think you'll see why as we go through, um, through this. I read a blog recently that talked about what researchers and popularizers call keystone habits. A keystone habit is a, is a new habit or maybe an old habit that needs to be renewed and revised, re- revived in your life that actually has the potential of, of giving life to more good habits. And so this habit, you, you take this on in your life, and it actually has positive outcomes in other areas of your life. Uh, the examples that the blogger gave, one of them was the habit of drinking more water every day. And uh, where intentionally increasing your intake of water can lead to making better food choices and uh, potentially increasing some exercise in your life. Um, another example, uh, forming the habit of putting on running shoes. I had some questions with this one, but uh, it says, putting on running shoes in the morning leads to walking for exercise, which will then lead to light jogging and eventually becoming a full-fledged regular runner. That's a stretch to me. Um, I can see wearing your running shoes to jog to the refrigerator for some snacks during the playoff game, but... Uh, but I get his point. You get his point? Uh, one habit, a keystone habit, can have significant trickle effects, if you will. And so for these two weeks, what I want to do is I want to commend to you one keystone habit. Maybe it's in your life. The fact that you're all here this morning would tell me that probably chances are pretty good that it's already there. Maybe not. Um, but I believe it's a habit that is absolutely essential if you are to experience a healthy, meaningful, productive, life-giving, joy-producing Christian walk. And that is this, corporate worship, gathering with the saints. Every single week that you can possibly be with the saints, you are. You lock that in. Uh, We live in a day when attending church is increasingly getting neglected, or at least taken very lightly. I mean, gone are the days when it was just normal for a follower of Jesus to be in church 50 out of 52 weeks. Believe it or not, that used to be the norm. 48, 50 weeks out of the year, you used to have church attendance and Sunday school attendance contests, and people would get badges and ribbons and awards for that. And it was just kind of pretty standard fare that a lot of people would, would reach those kinds of objectives or goals. Today, when it comes to gathering with other believers, occasional is the new normal. Occasional is the new normal. And even among quote-unquote committed Christians, to be in church maybe two weeks out of three is pretty much par for the course. Two-thirds of the year, one-third of the year, other stuff going on. Carrie Newhoff is one observer of this phenomenon of declining church attendance, and he's... He, in one of his blogs, he listed 
what he sees as being maybe 10 significant contributors to this. Now, let's run through these fairly quickly. Uh, Greater affluence. Um, People with money have options. You've got technological options. You've got travel options, uh, options for your kids. Uh, Affluence can be one of the factors moving people further away from a committed engagement to the mission of the local church. Uh, Secondly, a growing number of kids playing sports. We've all experienced that, seen that. Uh, Many of those sports happen on weekends. Increasingly, more and more of those sports happen on Sundays. Affluent affluent parents are choosing sports over church. Uh, It's just that simple. Uh, More travel kind of goes with the affluence. More and more families travel for leisure, even if it's just out of town to go camping or to a friend's place for the weekend. And generally, when you are out of town, you are out of church. Uh, Blended single-parent families, just the reality of our day. When custody is shared, making arrangements to spend weekend time with the kids, scheduling pickup and drop-off times, all of that contributes to uh, church attendance being affected. Online options, you got live streaming and and, uh, podcasts. Why would I go out in the cold when I can stay home and I know Gary's you know, the podcast will be up on Monday or Tuesday for me to watch. Or I can watch somebody else if I'm tired of Pastor Gary. Uh, the cultural disappearance of guilt. Uh, there was a time when people felt guilty, and I'm not suggesting this is a positive one, but there was a time when people felt guilty if they weren't with the church on a Sunday morning. That's not the case anymore. Um, while such guilt is never a good motivator, I don't, I don't commend that as a motivator, But it's a reality that fewer and fewer people have any qualms, any qualms at all about not attending. Self-directed spirituality. People are looking less and less to churches and to pastors and church leaders for spiritual guidance, and they're creating their own spiritual path. Failure to see a direct benefit. What's the value in being with the saints? Um, What do I get out of the time that I invest uh, valuing attendance over personal engagement, which is kind of ironic, but it, it, it's the way it works. Uh, when someone merely attends church, what was that? The likelihood of showing up and for church regularly decreases. I mean, as a pastor, I will tell you, I find, I find our most engaged people, people who serve, people who give, people who invite, people who are in a life group are our most frequent attenders. Just, they just go together. And then there's this massive culture shift that's going on in American culture that we're all a part of. We live not only in a post-Christian culture, but in a post-truth world. And as a result, there is declining trust and authority and institutions and an increasing skepticism as to whether or not the church really has the truth and its message is relevant. So those are some reasons that uh, one person, I think, I think you can probably resonate with a lot of those. Um, now, you might think that this is a brand new phenomenon in 21st century America. Not the case. Not true. Um, the writer of Hebrews would tell us that it's not the case. He wrote to first century believers these words, Hebrews 10, let us, interestingly, collective, let us Consider, think about, analyze how, come up with a plan, come up with ideas, how to stir up one another to love and good works, to 
Bridge of Hope stuff, to West Hills stuff, to loving the world, to being the people of God, wherever we happen to be, as a part of that, being not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. First century problem. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. But encouraging one another, encouraging one another, those that you especially are in circles with at West Hills, encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So the bad habit, which he addresses, is neglecting to meet together. He, sees that, he saw that as a problem. He saw that as a dangerous trend in the first century. There's a trend going on here, the writer of Hebrews says. The trend is for people to neglect meeting together. It's becoming their habit. And so the positive habit, the keystone habit that he is advocating is what? Meeting together and encouraging each other in that process. Now let's be clear. The objective is not having a habit of regular church attendance for the sake of church attendance. The objective is not so that you can check that box on your list of marks of personal spirituality. I mean, you don't form a habit of getting eight hours of sleep every night for the sake of sleep. You have the habit of eight hours of sleep for the sake of it knowing it affects your overall health. It affects you being alert the next day. It affects your energy the next day. It affects your thinking the next day. It affects your, your, your metabolism. All of those things. And so church attendance is not the end all. It is not a mark of your personal righteousness or so that you can feel good about yourself the rest of the way. I feel really good about myself because I went to church this morning. That's not it at all. No, it's for the sake of being the church. As a believer, you don't just go to church. We are the church, as Steve pointed out to us. We are the church. And regularly meeting with the gathered church has a significant effect on other areas of spiritual life. Not only on your spiritual life, but on others as well that we'll talk about next week's message. I mean, friends, it affects your spiritual growth. It affects your sanctification. It affects your serving. It affects your giving. It affects your prayer life. It affects your joy. It affects your peace. It actually, for those of you who are married, it affects your marriage. It affects your family. It affects your parenting. It affects your sense of hope. So my objective, my hope as your pastor who loves you and wants the very best for all of us, my objective over these two Sundays is to overwhelm you with reasons, biblical reasons why you should be with the gathered church every week that you'll make it a life resolution. Those of you who read my newsletter article from this week know what I'm talking about. A life resolution versus a New Year's resolution. A life resolution that may become for you a keystone habit that will actually have other outcomes in your life. Because to be honest with you, I'm not sure that there's any other habit. I've been thinking about this. I don't, I'm not sure there's any other habit that is in the Christian life that is more important than this one. And so this is why I'm addressing it at the beginning of a new year and why I'm going to spend two weeks and I'm going to give you 15 reasons. Hey, I could have given you 25. <laughs> it, went from, it went from, I think, 
12 to 15 to 21 to 25, and then back down to 21, and then down to 15. So you can thank somebody for that. I don't know who. But... What I want you to do, I want you to drive a stake in the ground. For your sake, and I'll hit on this next week, for your kids' sake and for your grandkids' sake, drive a stake in the ground in this critical area. Here we go. Why you should be with the gathered church. And I I told uh, Taylor the original title of this message was 15 Reasons Why You Should Be With the Gathered Church Every Week in 2018. And he said, can we shorten that a little bit? It's kind of hard for me to make a slide. I said, okay. Number one, Jesus modeled it. Our Lord modeled this. Luke 4, he came to Nazareth. Where he had been brought up, how were you brought up? How were you brought up? Where he had been brought up, raised, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Key phrase, as was his custom. And so Jesus was brought up going to synagogue. I mean, when he was a toddler, he was taken to synagogue by his parents. When he was a young boy, kindergarten age, five-year-old, ten-year-old, when, during his teen years, his custom was to, be, was to go with his family to synagogue. And then as a young adult, and then when, when he was a 30-year-old adult, this was still his custom, his habit to go to synagogue on the Sabbath. And so Jesus models for us the value of good keystone habits, life-transforming habits, habits that contribute to your godliness and your worship of the Father and your reverence and your stability in life, habits that contribute to wisdom and discernment and godly morals. And so along with the upbringing of his parents, going to synagogue is where Jesus was taught the scriptures. It's where he saw and listened to people pray. It's where he learned to pray himself. He didn't come from the womb praying. He learned how to pray by watching people pray at synagogue. It's where he had developed the love for God's law. It's where he saw the value in studying and memorizing large portions of Scripture which would prove to be invaluable in his earthly ministry. How often does Jesus quote the Old Testament Scriptures? continually. And I am personally convinced beyond a doubt that his custom of going to synagogue every week played a huge role in preparing him for those 40 days of testing in the wilderness where the devil threw everything at him that he had. And so friends, how easy is it for us to think that developing the weekly habit of being with God's people and under the instruction of God's word isn't really all that important. Your Lord would beg to differ. Secondly, the early church practiced it. The early church practiced it. Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, 
They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. Did you notice the operative word in those verses? Together. Together. They were all together. All who believed were together. They didn't all go their own way. They didn't all come to Jesus and get salvation and say, okay, well, now I'm going to go do my own thing and you go do your own thing. No, they were all together. They, they, they believed together. They ate together. The Apostle Paul stresses this when he wrote to the church at Corinth with the repetition of one phrase. When you come together. 11.17, 11.18, when you come together as a church. 11.20, when you come together. 11.33, when you come together to eat. 11.34, when you come together. 14.23, the whole church comes together. 14.26, when you come together. You see, the modern day notion that you can be a part of the church without being with the church would be so foreign to the early church. They would not resonate with that at all. Well, you can be a Christian, but you don't really need the church. As soon as you start thinking that way, this becomes very optional. It depends on how I feel on, when I wake up on Sunday morning. And do you know what other believers in other parts of the world today would tell us? They will do anything. They will walk for miles. They will, they will risk persecution just to be with the gathered saints of God. We have accommodated ourselves, friends. See, I fear, that, I fear that our culture and its values are causing us to compromise in this critical area of our Christian walk. We have accommodated ourselves to the culture. We have become cultural Christians, compromising Christians rather than committed Christians. Next, the love of God compels that we gather with the saints. I mean, God's love, God's love should compel us to be with the saints whenever we possibly can. You know all the verses about God's love. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son. Romans 5, God shows his love in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 8, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. 1 John 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And I could give you probably a hundred more just like those. Now here's the deal. It is so easy to take love for granted. It's so easy to take the love of your wife or your husband for granted. It's so easy to take the love of your mom or your dad for granted. It's so easy to take love for granted until you stop and think what your life would be like without that love. Just take it all away for a week. How will you do? And it is so easy to take the love of God for granted. Just kind of ho-hum about this unbelievable, unfathomable, amazing, incredible, beyond imagination love that God has shown to us in Christ. 
What would your life be like if you were not loved by God? See, brothers and sisters, I'm suggesting that God's love compels us, constrains us to love what God loves. And God loves his church. And so it compels us to want to be with the ones that God loves. The people who are sitting next to you and in front of you and behind you. You're with people that God loves this morning. You see, when you come together with other believers, there's this collective expression of God's love. We've experienced it already this morning. This is where the father is smiling on his family. Get that image in your head. This is where the father is smiling on his family. Over Christmas, as, as I'm sure most of you had the opportunity, we had the opportunity to, with, for our family to be together on several occasions. First here in St. Louis, where most of us were able to get together Christmas Eve, Christmas morning. Josh's family down in Nashville wasn't able to join us, and so we all went down there. All of St. Louis went down to, to Nashville for four or five days. We had everybody together. We ate together. We played games together. We had conversations. We opened presents. We laughed, played with the grandkids. We just had a great, great time. <clears throat> and I've got to tell you, there is nothing in the life of this man that warms my heart more as a dad as being with my family. They make me smile. They make me, make me laugh. They make me have a sense of awe at the hand of God in their lives. They make me well up as I am right now with tears of joy. I mean, and I give that to you because I think that's a small, small, small sampling of how the father feels about his family. He loves his kids. Oh, he loves them. And he loves when they're together. And so when you come together on a Sunday morning, just remind yourself, these are God's kids. This is God's family. And I get to be a part of it. I mean, yeah, probably kind of like your extended family. Some of them are a little loony. You know, there's going to be some wackadoos in the family of God, but they're wackadoos who are loved by Jesus. Uncle Harry, kind of weird. And so you keep all those things in perspective. All of that to say God's love just has to compel you to be here whenever you can possibly be here. Amen? Feel free. There's about seven points here, so I can get seven good, strong amens out of this message. Next on the list, our new identity assumes that we will want to be with the people of God. It's our identity. We've been given this whole new identity, several verses up on the screen. Fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, a people for God's own possession, God's people, children of God. That's your new identity. Our identity should compel us to want to be with other people who match that identity. The assumption is that you will now act and function in accordance with your new status. 
It's like a new player for the Blues or for the Cardinals. The guy joins the team. It'd be strange if they didn't show up for practice. They've got this new status. They're a part of this new team. They show up for practice. They show up for the. They show up for the games. And so God has graciously added you to His team. And yet, you consider your attendance and involvement with the rest of the team to be purely optional? It makes no sense. Not to mention the fact that you're missing out on all the privileges and benefits that come with being on the team. Next, the spirit who dwells within you yearns for it. The spirit who dwells within you yearns for this. Okay. First Corinthians 3. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? And so you literally have the Holy Spirit, the spirit of Christ dwelling within you. He's like a permanent border. Always living there. Never leaves. He lives in you. He lives with you. He lives within you just like he lives within the others who know Jesus who are here today in this room. And so when Paul says to the Corinthians that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you, there is the individual aspect. The Holy Spirit lives in you and you and you and you and you and you. and The Holy Spirit dwells within each individual believer. There's also the corporate element here. The Spirit of God dwells in you, the body of Christ. The Spirit of God dwells in the church collectively. Ephesians 2.22, in Him you also, you collectively are being built together into a dwelling place for God by His Spirit. That's the collective aspect to this. And friends, here's what you need to understand when you talk about the Holy Spirit. He is a person. And as a person, there are things that we do that bring him much joy, and there are things that we do that bring him great sorrow. There are things that we do that give him delight, and there are things that we do that cause him to grieve. And I believe one of the things that he desires is when those in whom he dwells come together to worship the Father and to glorify the Son. I mean, that's his mission. That's the mission of the Holy Spirit, to glorify God the Father and God the Son. So, what does that mean on a Sunday morning? Well, it means this, that it is the Holy Spirit who does the teaching when the Word of God is being taught and preached. It is the Holy Spirit who is stirring believers to greet each other on a Sunday morning, to share words of encouragement, to give a hug, to put an arm around a shoulder and pray for a sister or a brother. That's all the Holy Spirit's doing in us, the people of God, collectively. So, when you stay home for no good reason other than you just want to stay home, or when you put other things as more important on your Sunday schedule... The person of the Holy Spirit is grieved. You need to understand that. It's not just about you. It's about the one who boards with you. Ephesians 4, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. 
Now, there are lots of ways you can grieve the Holy Spirit, and this is definitely, in my book, this is definitely one of them. I mean, it's like having a, it's like having a godly friend or relative come to St. Louis for the weekend. They come in on a Friday afternoon, Friday supper time, and, and you, you go out for dinner, and you want to show them something that they've never seen before, and then on Saturday, you spend all day Saturday seeing stuff around St. Louis, and, and then on Saturday night, you say, you know, I thought maybe tomorrow we could go to Grant's Farm, or I'd like to take you to Six Flags, or you've never been to Ikea? Well, I'll take you to Ikea on sun- Sunday. And this friend or relative says to you, you know, I was really hoping that we could go to your church. I'd love to go to your church with you. See, friends, I want for you to hear the Holy Spirit whispering to you when you're doing other stuff that has relegated being with the gathered church to second or third place on the totem pole. I want you to hear the Holy Spirit whispering, why are we here? Why aren't we with the rest of the family? Why aren't we with the other members of the body in whom I also dwell when they gather together? Why aren't we there with them this morning? I want you to hear him say with great tenderness and great love, this grieves me. Next on the list, the big three are against it. The big three are against you being with the church. Say, well, Gary, what are the big three? ABC, CBS, and NBC. No. (laughs) The big three, the world, the flesh, and the devil are all against the gathered church. John 15, verses 8 and 9, the world demeans it. The world's system, the world's values demean. The world system that operates contrary to God is against you being with the gathered church. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. The world loves to embrace you and bring you into its values. James 4, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. See, friends, the world will throw you a thousand reasons, rationalizations, and justifications for not being with the people of God on a Sunday morning. There will be lots of reasons out there that the world will give you for not being with the saints. And then there's the flesh. The the flesh disputes the value of being with, with the saints. The flesh is that part of your nature that is still not completely redeemed and sanctified. And so you're driven by those fleshly desires for pleasure, leisure, a couple extra hours of sleep, the comfort of staying home and reading the newspaper, or whatever it is for you. I mean, on a day like today, you know, the the Christmas song, baby, it's cold outside. Say what? So people in Iceland and Norway never go to church? People in Minnesota never go to church? People in Canada never go to church? Seriously? My wife reminded me this morning, what about our ancestors? They had, to, they had to go out to the barn and hitch up the horses to the wagon and bundle up with blankets. And, and we think to ourselves, if we only had heated seats, we'd go to church this morning. 
And so you don't trust your flesh. Romans 13, make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires because your flesh, that part of your nature that still needs to be redeemed is always going to be saying, eh, let's not. And then, of course, there's the devil. The devil detests what we do here on Sunday morning. The devil hates this. The devil hates Bridge of Hope. The devil hates the church of Jesus Christ. Whenever they gather together, He prowls around trying to destroy Christians and the church. He accuses day and night. He lies. He speaks out of his own character. He's a liar, the father of lies. And so he seeks to to cause you to not do this. He hates corporate worship because he is jealous of God receiving glory. He despises Christ's victory over sin and death and for us to sing songs that praise him. He hates the preaching and teaching of God's word. He hates it when God's people gather together and love each other. He detests seeing people praying with each other on a Sunday morning. You know what he loves? He loves laziness. He loves flimsy excuses. He loves, you don't have to go to church to be a good Christian. He loves that. From day one, he has sought to destroy the church, and he's still trying to do it today. So friends, understand You do not have a passive enemy. Do not make the mistake of assuming that your decision to skip church, to give priority to other things instead of church, are not at times being swayed by the influences of the evil one who is whispering in your ear. Those are the big three. And then lastly for this morning, when you disregard the gathered church, you are spurning God. See, what you need to understand is that the church was not a human invention. It wasn't dreamed up by the apostles. The church didn't come into existence as a result of a group of people getting together and forming a collective society with certain common values and objectives and ideas and goals. The church is not like the Lions Club or Kiwanis or Knights of Columbus or Mothers Against Drunk Drivers. The church was God's idea. It is God's plan. It is God's dream to make for himself a people, not just individuals, a people for his own possession. The church of Jesus Christ is near and dear to the heart of the Father. And so it's simply not about going to church. It's about being the church, gathering with his people to honor him and to love him and to worship him and to enjoy him and to delight in him and to sing his praises and to to pray to him and collectively tell him how much we love him and to learn from him and to be sent out by him back into the world. Which means that you dishonor God when you are dismissive of his church. You are dissing God in your attitude toward his church. How can you say, how can any of us say that, you, that we love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and yet treat gathering with God's people as being purely optional? Coming to church when I feel like it. Only coming as long as there aren't other options on the table. Why do other things trump church? Please give me an answer to that one. 
Can you imagine being on a team and only showing up for half the games? Can you imagine telling your boss that you won't be at work this week because of a birthday party or a kid's soccer game? Try that this week. I've got 20 bucks to the person who will try that this week. And yet that's exactly what we say about the church. I can't be at church this morning because I got soccer. What if the Christians of America were to rise up as parents and say, you know what, no. No, we got to change this thing. we got to be salt and light. There was a day when never was there a soccer game or any other kids' sports on a Sunday. What if the Christian parents banded together and, and went to the, the powers that be and said, this is not right. My child's spiritual growth is more important than their soccer prowess. Say, well, Pastor Gary, you're making me feel guilty. Brothers and sisters, what do I want for you? Only your very best. 2 Corinthians 7, let me show you this. Even if I have made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that that letter did grieve you, but only for a little while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation with no regrets. My friends, God deserves better. God doesn't deserve second place. Don't give him the leftovers. Give him your best. Give his church your very, very best. Drive a stake in the ground, a life resolution that your children will thank you for. Your grandchildren will look back and say, thank God that Pops and Yaya did that every single week. We're not done. Next week, I'll give you eight more reasons. So, don't stay home for that one. Wouldn't that be ironic? <clears throat> and then next week, I'm going to give you a card. We're not going to collect these cards. This is going to be your own card. It's going to say something to the effect. I haven't figured out the exact wording, but with God's help, I resolve over the coming year to be with the gathered church and then there's going to be a blank for you to fill in a number out of 52 Sundays. Okay? And so this week, think about it. Next week, you can make a resolve, resolve to drive a stake. Amen? Let's pray together. We're running late. I always forget this. Is communion on this Sunday? Okay. Praise God. That's just... <laughs> I love the Lord's table, but let's pray together and Scott will come up and wrap us up. Would you just take a minute right now and just say something to the Lord? 
with regard to what he has been saying to you today. Oh, Father God, we love your church. We just want to tell you that. We want to express the affections of our heart. Thank you for such a wonderful plan. Thank you for including us in it through Christ our Savior. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that it's by your great, great sacrifice that we are who we are today. We have a brand new status, a brand new identity. We are the children of God, the redeemed, the saints, the beloved. And so we would ask, Holy Spirit, that you would sink these wonderful, wonderful truths about the church into our hearts and our minds and our wills, that we would that we would resolve by your grace and with your help not some form of legalism but some expression of great delight we want to be with your people we love you Lord thank you for loving us thank you for calling us together on this day Thank you for the great gifts that we experience with each other. And, and even as we conclude the service in the coming minutes, may we continue to be the church. And then as you would send us out into the world as salt and light, that what we do here would overflow there. All for your glory and your honor and your praise. It's in the matchless name of Jesus, our Savior, that we pray. God's people agreed by saying...